welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. We head back over to the player development side on this week's ABCA podcast with Cubs minor league hitting coordinator Rachel Folden. Folden was a standout player at Marshall being inducted into their Hall of Fame. After college, Folden spent time playing for the Chicago Bandits. Folden spent one season coaching at Valparaiso University and left coaching to focus on running her own training facility, Folden Fast Pitch. Folden was hired by the Cubs in November 20 as a minor league hitting coach, and she's made an immediate impact on the organization working her way up to minor league hitting coordinator. This is a wide open conversation on developing hitters, so get your pad and pen ready. Folden gives us great advice on coaching hitters in this episode. Let's welcome Rachel Folden to the podcast. So are you in Arizona full time now? No, well, the season is my travel part of the season is over, so I travel up and down. Okay. And so we just have uh, AAA's wrapping up their season this week today, actually, and then uh, our AA team is starting game one of their championship run today. So they've got a best out of three. So they play t- today, Tuesday, and then if necessary on Wednesday for the championship, and then the season is over. Minor league season's yeah. over. And you still have. So I'm here. I'm here in Arizona for instructs. Do you still have your facility uh, up north? I still have my business. It's okay. we I rent out of a facility, but okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, because I wasn't so. sure. I, I figured you did, because obviously you're you can work with people in the off season and you know it makes it easier yep. for you too. Yep. So right now I'm in Arizona for instructs, but I live here. So I'm at my house. <laughs> my godmother lives in Mesa. Oh nice. It's actually Joe Girardi's aunt. Um I got Holy cow. Yeah, it's um all roads lead back to the Midwest, but um, my godfather was the wrestling coach at Illinois State when I was born, and okay. so Joe's uncle, and so uh, they were my godparents, and um, obviously Joe was younger at that point, but I actually worked construction with Joe's dad uh, one summer when I was playing summer ball in Bloomington Normal, so I did actually work with Joe's dad. He's, they're both passed away. Wow. Now, but, um, yeah, Joe... I'm sorry to hear that, but that's well, an amazing I mean, that story. Was a long time what a, ago. what an amazing and connection! My godmother is unbelievable because she still has her place in Bloomington Normal, and then she's got her place in Mesa, and she spends depending on the weather. Um, you know, when it's nice in the Midwest, she's back, but when it's nice in Arizona, she's there. So, 
Right. Yeah. Right. So she's got she got the best of everything. She's still very For cognitive. Sure. She's in her mid nineties and still rolling pretty. Wow. Good. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's going pretty good. I saw her. We ran an event at Chandler Gilbert um, a couple years ago, and so I got a chance to see her. She's still getting around great. Drives still, um, still doing great. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. I love to hear that. My grandma lived till she was ninety, and so did my grandpa. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hopefully. I know. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I know. Here with Rachel Folden, Cubs minor league hitting coach, uh, Marshall University Hall of Famer, uh, Chicago Bandits, and then coached in college for a little bit, owned a facility before you came on with the Cubs. But Rachel, thanks for jumping on with me. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. How did you get to Marshall from California? Uh, I got a letter in the mail that said they were recruiting me. And, you know, back every back in the day when everything was through the mail. And apparently they had seen me play at a tournament in Las Vegas. So uh yeah that was they started recruiting me pretty hard i got like these a to z's why you should go to marshall so i'd get something in the mail every day for like 26 days and that was i went on a visit and that was it man i as soon as i stepped on campus i was like i'm gonna go here was there any culture shock going to west virginia yeah absolutely i mean because for Um, me i mean i i coached at james madison and so i would drive through west virginia and um, huntington was one of the places that you would drive through 64 went right through there and you know living in that part of the world never being there it was it was different for me having never been there it's it's a different place a great place to go to college and the thing about growing up in southern california is we don't have college towns so as soon as I got there and you realize that, you know, they, they put you there on a, on a football Saturday. So the town just shuts down and you really see, wow, this is completely different atmosphere than what I'm used to. And that's what drew me to it is I wanted something different than just the normal, you know, go to school down the road, like everybody else in California does. And I, the, the two schools I got recruited by the heaviest were Marshall and UC Riverside and UC Riverside was right in my backyard and I wanted to go away from home. And so as soon as I stepped on campus, I was like, yeah, this is it. Yeah, that was the thing. When we recruited West Coast kids, people were like, why are you going out there? I'm like, they love the campus environment because you don't have it out there. So I felt like if we could get them to take a look at the places we were at, they would come just because it was different than what they were used to. For sure. You know, and it's amazing how the the universe works because then you go to the Bandits um, and play with the Bandits for a little. And that brings you to the Midwest. Was that the first time you'd ever spent any time in the Midwest? Yeah, an extended period of time for sure. Uh, The cool part about that connection was a couple of my teammates, they're twins, Jessica and Amanda Williams went and they both played in Chicago for the Bandits and they played in the league. So I didn't even like when I first started college, I didn't even know there was a professional league and it's very fledgling. It still is, which is unfortunate, but that was brought to my attention because of them and because the teams came to see and watch or came to see them play. They got to see me play. And so I ended up being very fortunate enough to play five years in professional softball, which was cool. Ending out my career in North Carolina, playing for a team called the diamonds and uh, met some of the great, that team was awesome. I met some really good people on that team. Uh, One of them is actually my roommate. Now she works for the Cleveland guardians. Her name is Amanda Kamakona. She played at UCLA and uh, yeah, we both live in Arizona. So we, we're roommates. Did you play with Sammy Marshall? I mean, it all runs I did together because I, I, I I'm, figured... I'm I'm real old. I'm real old. <laughs> I was old. trying Sammy to give Marshall you a, layup a little there with Sammy because Sammy was a heck of a player at, at Western Illinois. You want to you want to know what's funny is Sammy played on the travel ball bandits. 
and the Beverly Bandits. And when I was coaching at Valpo, which was in 09 and 10, I actually saw Sammy play and thought, that girl is really good at softball. And she stuck out to me. So I only coached really in college athletic. softball for she two and so a half years. She oh. was so athletic. Incredible. She had all the things that I don't have. Like she's got she speed fly. and like, yes. yeah. She could do it's... everything. Yeah. When did you know it yep. was time to stop? Stop what? Playing? Playing? Yeah. You know, the for us, like the game kind of gets taken from us. We can't afford to play. Um, and, and that's, that's the unfortunate reality of it. And that was where I was at. I was, had left school or left home for school, spent four years there. And obviously like any good college student, you go to school for nine months, you come home, you go to school for nine months, you come home. So it was constantly just moving around. Then it was go to play in Chicago, then go coach at Valpo, live in Indiana, then leave Indiana, go to North Carolina to play. And I was just ready to like, if I wasn't going to be able to make a living playing the game, then I was going to have to go just start making a living doing something else. And I had a real passion for coaching and that kind of just blended together um, pretty, pretty naturally, actually. I mean, when did the light bulb on, go on where you're going to open a facility? That was out of necessity. So I thought for sure I wanted to be a college coach. I switched my major in college so I could graduate on time. I put all the things in motion so that I could just get my degree, get out and go into college coaching. And I got into college coaching. I hated it. I, you, you and you I know, were you know, instantly, this. like, you know, you know, instantly, you know instantly. like it, it's like, there's no, like you need to do it. That's why we need to bring GA spots back. Cause you will find out in the first two weeks if that's what you want to do or not. And I, the, the part I hated was the recruiting part. You know, you and I were talking about this before is you love, love recruiting and you love being in the car. And I couldn't stand spending 12 hours at the ball, ballpark to watch mediocre softball to try to convince a pretty good player, hey, don't go to Ohio State, but maybe you could come to Valpo. Like that just, it didn't really interest me all that much. And um, I love the coaching aspect of it though. I love the day-to-day. I love getting on the field. So I, I so stopped. you're a pro ball coach. I mean, that's, that's what pro ball coaches are. Exactly. So it, it suits my my skill set and it suits my needs. And so it's a perfect ma- match now. And that's that's the greatest part about what I do for a living now is I get to get paid to be on the field and yep. just coach. Yep. And so, but yeah, I hated I hated the recruiting aspect of it. I just so when you asked me about my facility, I just I stopped coaching. I went to work at Best Buy. I was selling. I just needed to make money, right? And I was slinging phones at Best Buy for $10 an hour, no commission, just working and hustling. And by luck of the draw, I got asked. So my old Valpo coach was a coach at, he got hired as an assistant coach at Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. So he calls me and he goes, hey, my pitching coach is out of town and we need you to work camp. And I was like, all right, drive up there. I'll work the pitching portion of camp, which was hilarious because I was kind of a, I was a pitching coach at Valpo, even though my skill set is hitting and catching, but that's another story for another time. But he asked me to work camp. This girl, tr- the camp started at eight and ended at one. This girl strides up at one o'clock in with just hustling with her bag. And she's late. She thought the camp started at one. Mom told her she started at one, ended at one. So he, I'm in the parking lot. I'm ready to go and drive four hours back to Valparaiso, Indiana. And he goes, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I've got to go watch the games that are going on on our field. I need you to work with this girl. Just give her money's worth. Work with her for an hour. He's, I think she's from your area. All right, cool. So I work with her for an hour, get to know her. Turns out her dad has a construction warehouse and it's like 30 minutes from my house. 
So I was, he's like, would you consider working with her in the, in the off season? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So started going there. Then it was her and one of her teammates. Then it was her and one of her teammates and one of her friends from school. And that turned into one night a week. And then it turned into two nights a week. And then I, I worked out of his garage. I mean, it was literally like trucks and there was a cage hanging and it was dirty and it was awesome. And started, I did that for probably like four or five years. And then he called and said they sold the building. So I had to move. And then that's when I opened up Bold and Fast Pitch. But it was literally just like the the universe wanted me to do what I was doing because yeah. there's no other way to explain what happened and how lucky I got. So yeah, that's that's how that happened. When did you start tinkering around with the tech side of things in the facility? So I've always been interested in it and I've always been kind of had a knack for it, like just implementing stuff and getting ideas. And I've always been really curious. And so the first thing I did, I bought a blast sensor, like just bought a blast sensor and started playing around with that. Started to get to know the metrics, got really good at blast. And then it became like, then I would use video a lot and it was like, okay, how do we pair the two? Then I bought like a pocket radar and had the display out and just started using, okay, so now we're, we're looking at bat metrics, we're looking at ball metrics, you know, just, Little by little, just doing that. And then when I started to really partner up with uh, Elite Baseball, which was Travis Kerber and Justin Stone, yeah. When I when I partnered up with them is when they introduced me to all of the cutting-edge tech, right? They, they get their hands on everything first. And they were – I was super lucky. They just invited me up there. And I would drive up there on most Saturdays and just play around on the stuff and got really good at it. I would talk to Travis a lot. Travis is one of my best friends. And I would talk to him a lot, just how to use stuff. How is he implementing it? Then we started to do assessments for people. Then we started to do consulting for people. And so then it just, okay, the more consulting revenue we have, the more we can spend on tech. And so now we, you know, just get our hands on more stuff. So that was pretty much it. But it really exploded when I met Stoney and Travis and Elite Baseball and started partnering up with them. Yeah, I worked all their camps. Even when Stoney was with the White Sox, I would I would go work his camps. Hey, yep. with the blast sensor, if I'm coaching amateur kids using it or I'm coaching pro players using it, are there more important ones to pay attention to depending on age? Uh, yeah, I would definitely say so. I think, you know, the younger you are, focusing on bat, bat speed becomes more important. And, you know, the older you are, the more you can fine tune things like early connection and connection to impact and how that works within your swing and VBA and everything like that. But I think for the, for the youth, it's, it's really good for bat speed. Hey, it's for really somebody good for, who doesn't know VBA, vertical, vertical bat angle, correct? Yes. Yeah, vertical bat angle. Cause yeah. we get a wide range of listeners and I'm sure somebody listening, I'll be like, what's VBA. So yeah. yeah. Vertical bat angle. My apologies. No, but, it's okay. uh, <laughs> I, I always try to get clarification. Like I always get clarification. For sure. And you absolutely do. You always got to consider your audience. So yes. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. The attack angle is really good for kids to learn how to be on time. I think attack angle is a really good timing metric. Uh, bat speed's a really good one. I like, I even like vertical bat angle for kids. I really like rotational acceleration more for youth than for adults. I think, once you get to a certain point of rotational acceleration, too much is bad. Yep. And we can go into that if you want to, but I think you can have and a swing that's that has a too much. thing too, isn't it? For rotational acceleration for maybe a young kid that maybe it's it's a maturity thing where they've got to get stronger so they start moving faster. 
Yeah. And that's, that's all tied into bat speed and that's all tied into how you create that bat speed too. And for sure, I think, you know, a lot of 10 year olds don't swing the bat as hard as a lot of 12 year olds. Right. And so you just grow and you get stronger. So it, it does go hand in hand for sure. With the minor league seasons ending right now, what's their timeline until they show up for spring training? Uh, spring training, we'll have some early arrivals. Con- we'll, the facility in Arizona will be open all winter, so except you'll for have the dead players period. Show up this winter. Do you bring them back on purpose, or is it just players come in to get work in? So we have an invite, uh, like a, we invite players for you know select a select group of players for a winter like strength camp. Yeah. And we do, we do on-field work. We just do it in a limited fashion so they can recover, and it's really strength-focused. And if on some occasions, if, like, let's say a guy needs a big swing adjustment, we'll bring him in for two weeks for a big swing adjustment, and then he can go back home or he can stay. But now we have a dead period. So this is brand new to baseball, uh, the collective bargaining agreement. We have a dead period between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So the facility will be closed. Everybody will just be off, which would be great. It's great for staff. It's great for players. And uh, yeah, but yeah, it'll be. We have instructs going on right now, which is where I'm. That's what I'm doing right now. And then after instructs, we'll have our performance camp. After our performance camp, then everybody will be off. And then once January rolls around, you'll basically have early arrivals coming in in waves and then first week of spring is usually when almost everybody is is on campus so the guys that just finished they completely put it down or active recovery what are they getting into now that their seasons are finished depends on where they're at in their development so if we have like our draft picks right now we're playing because we need to give them a full season to get it under their legs because as we know the draft keeps getting put getting pushed later and later so we want to get them as many games as possible in their first season and get as much information on them and get you know the best chance to help them if we can, if we think they need help in a certain area. So they're playing right now, aside from, again, the guys in AA and AAA right now, which we only have one draft pick in AA. So everybody else is here and playing, or half of them are, and then the other half are going to come to the performance camp. So it just depends on what their needs are. We need guys to get more games. We get more games. We need guys to get bigger and stronger. Then we bring them for, to the performance camp. So it's just kind of uh, a variation on on what they need. Do we ever get to a point where they're full time employees and in the off season they've got to go mm-hmm. live in the complex? It the off season keeps getting shorter and shorter. So I I I am not John Kramer's you know, a really good part friend of, the of mine. He's, he's in the Yankees front office and he's done a million different jobs for the Yankees. But he and I talked about that. This was when I was still coaching. I'm like, I don't understand like why they're not 12 month salaried employees. And then they go train in the off season. And that way they don't have to get jobs in the off season. We talked about how hard it is. You know, coaching's hard. Being in the minors is hard. You don't make that much money. Oof. So what do you do in the off season? For me, I'm like, okay, there's got to be some forward-thinking organization out there. But with the collective bargaining agreement, I, don't, I know one organization can't go rogue and be like, we're going to just pay them as 12-month salary. Employees, they just can't do it with the collective bargaining agreement. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility, but I that's so above my pay grade. It's not <laughs> even funny. I just – I show up when I they know. tell me to show I, up. I can, I I'll put the players. GM hat on. You could, you could yeah. do the coach hat. I just – because yeah. you and I are similar from – I just think about things differently, and I'm like, this would make more sense, where it's run a little bit more like college, where you have – not that you have them 12 months of the year, but you have your hands on them 
pretty much 12 months of the year. And I think the numbers are proving out of college players making the big leagues now that the college side has some things figured out that, that, you know, I think college starting to get a lot of things figured out too. So, Mm -hmm. yep, I agree. At what point, at what point did you think this was a viable option for you to get into professional baseball? So it was honestly not my idea. It was, it was Stoney's idea, to be honest. I was working with them, getting involved on the baseball side. When we first met, it was funny. We, he took me out to breakfast, him and Travis, and we were talking about, he's like, we want to bring you on and basically like overhaul our softball side of the business. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready to give up my part of the business. And I said, but I do want to work with you guys so we can partner and do something like that. And, but I want to be involved in all the baseball stuff. And I knew, I don't know why I asked that. I've always been intrigued by baseball, been a huge baseball fan my whole life. My well, dad's played a baseball Little, guy. You played through Little League, correct? Yeah. Yes. Correct. So I've always just had a love for baseball. So I wanted to be around it. And I know, just like every other softball coach who happens to be listening to this, we we get the watered down version of everything. So I wanted I wanted to be on, you know, the the I wanted to be at the penthouse level. I don't want to be on the ground floor with anything. So I got involved and when he got hired as the director of hitting for the Cubs, he told me and he said, we need minor league coaches. I encourage you to apply. He goes, you're qualified for it. You should apply. And I just was like, whoa, I didn't even think about it. And the way that my life was going, the the timing of it was just perfect. I was like in the need for a change, for some growth, for something. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I'll apply. And that's how that happened. And my application process and my interview process was probably different than most people's. I had to sit in Chicago in the offices in Wrigley Field with Jed Hoyer and Theo Epstein. And that was my interview. So it was pretty interesting um, to what say the least. Great experience. For, what were some of their questions to vet you? I think a lot of I got kind of the same gist of questions from everybody. And it was mostly like, do you know, can, like, can you handle what's coming? Because, you know, I talked to, to Rachel Balkovec a lot and we talk a lot about just that. I mean, people are mean, right? There's a lot of slander on the internet and there's a lot of people had a really adverse reaction to my hire, which was fine. I could, I handle it. Yes. But I think they needed to know that. And, you know, it just depended on like, I think they wanted to see, what kind of human being I was, which is why I love working for the Cubs organization is I think we hire really good people. And I think they wanted to make sure that I fit into that culture as a human in with empathy and with understanding for players and that kind of, you know, just human interaction. So I think that was the vetting process more than anything, but a lot of it was just like, do you know what's coming? And are you the person that's going to handle it? Because if you hire the wrong woman, and I know this, I take this wrong, personal just wrong responsibility. Person. If, if you hire the yeah. wrong person, it just things can go south in a hurry. And I, I always jump in on social because I put a lot of Rachel stuff out from the convention, and I've put Bianca's stuff out. And people, I'm like, hey, you need to check the background before you start coming at people because – you know, my brother and I talk about this a lot. For a female to get a position, they're going to be overqualified over a male. They're going to be overqualified. They are. Like, to get that opportunity, they're going to have to have done way more than what a man did to get in that position. Because, again, for a variety of reasons, baseballs are dinosaur. baseball has been dinosaurs. We're getting better. But for a woman to get into that room and into that position, she's going to be way more qualified than a man is. But 
on you are correct. But what I was saying before is if you hire the wrong woman though, uh, there'll never be a woman hired in that position again. So we, we shut, we slam the door shut behind us if we don't do a good job. So I think, you know, I, and that was part of during the interview process, that was part of my interview is I didn't want to be a canary. I didn't want to be someone who was just thrown in there to like, see what's happening. And just, if it doesn't work out well, we could say we hired a woman and everybody wins. No, I didn't want that. So part of my vetting process too was, is this just a token hire or are you actually hiring me because you think I'm right for the job? And the answer I got, and this was out of the C-suite of the Chicago Cubs was we don't have time to make the wrong decision. We are overhauling our player development system and we want to get it right. And so that's why you're here. So that I felt really good about it. Yep. And I've, I've had quite a few of the peak performance coaches too, the female pro peak performance coaches. And, you know, one of the things that people don't always think about is that a lot of guys come from single family homes where they've been raised by a, a woman and their dad wasn't around where they're going to gravitate towards that voice a little bit more at times over a man's voice. Like we talk about that For all sure. the time. I just think that it's time that we need to get to that point because there are a lot of guys out there that haven't had men in their lives that are used to listening to a female voice. Yeah, I and that is definitely apparent, especially with a lot of these Latin American players too. They're very they're raised by their moms. Their moms run the household, you know, while dad's off to work. So a lot of times they're very close with their moms, and that really does help strengthen a bond from the very get go. And and they don't mind. They're used to being raised by their mothers and their grandmothers, so they don't mind being told what to do by a woman. So that helps for sure. You know, I interviewed Stoney and Rachel both during COVID, but Stoney and I, I threw it out there a little bit with uh, force plates. And I asked him how close it was to being able to use force plates in game action. And I don't know. I mean, that was a while ago, so I figured it's getting closer. Is there, are there force plates that are used for in game action now? We don't use them for in game action, but we can use them in, like, for example, here in our lab, they're embedded into the ground. So we can theoretically put a live pitcher in there and get some live game data. Yeah. And we do have, um, we do have a traject machine that we can throw simulate a live pitcher. So we can put a hitter in there so we can capture game like data. But as far as like having somebody exit the box and run to first base, like we don't, we don't, I, I can't see that coming in game anytime soon at the pro level. Yeah. I could see it happening college baseball, maybe even at the youth level, something like that. But as far as just, asking people to to spend a ton of money on that equipment and put it outside underneath dirt i think is probably asking a little bit too much so in the cages though i mean they're inside in the cages i know they're in there because i i was always wondered if maybe the data would be different because the adrenaline's going against a live pitcher where maybe the data might be different from a force plate standpoint just because the adrenaline's going so i i just didn't know if there might be a difference in the data with that we I, to be honest we've done a ton of different types of training environments and this is both with elite baseball and in pro baseball too and it really is remarkable how the way an athlete creates force is pretty consistent no matter what kind of uh you know it's it's like their signature almost yeah. so no matter what the training environment is that's how they're going to create force which just kind of I guess reinforces what we know about motor patterns, right? Which is they'll, your body will always pick or your brain will always pick the easiest one, the one that it's most familiar with. So it's even if you switch up the, the training environment, it's pretty consistent. 
there are changes for sure, you know, off-speed pitches, stuff like that, but it's pretty consistent. With your protocol for mixed BP, machines, overhand, feel good, I mean, what what are the percentages for you? And I know there's varying. You're dealing with pro athletes, so you could probably challenge them maybe a little bit more than maybe if you're dealing with a 10-year-old. But where you're at from a percentage standpoint with all that, from a challenge environment to maybe a feel-good environment, what do you feel like is best? Uh, a combination of both, for sure. I think there has to be things that are slightly out of their reach that are challenging. And then I also have to think I, – I, I think they also have to – to train with things that are in their reach as well. And I think there's a time and a place for just building motor patterns with blocked practice. I think you still need that. I think there's a place for it. It can't all be chaos. Right. Yeah. But some of the, some of the rules that we, you know, try to, cause I'm a hitting coordinator, right? So we get to kind of go out to all the affiliates and during spring training, we get to basically like take care of the system that is the Chicago Cubs and one of the things that we like to do is make sure they see velo every day, make sure they see spin every day, make sure they see an arm every day, and make sure that they get their routine in every day. And if we can tackle those things, and some days we fail, and some days we it's a bad drill. Some days we are, we'll hit out on the field, and it's way too difficult, and we are getting MF'd by every player as we walk off the field, and we're like, all right, maybe that wasn't the drill for it. It was too hard, right? You don't we don't if we can get into that like but if you don't try it you don't know like that's the thing exactly if, if you don't try it you don't know like that that's the science experiment part of it like if you don't try it you got to try it because okay yeah we learned we learned that that's not where we need to go but if you don't try then you don't know for sure but the the thing is and this is something i think we've learned as an organization is there's a time and a place to try it so instructs great time to 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 find stuff out to try stuff to experiment when you're in spring training and you got guys competing to make a club and we just wasted a day on a drill that was just stupid to begin with, now we're messing with guys' careers. So I think we're, we're learning the, the sweet spot of it. And I'm learning that because, you know, I came from the facility world where everybody comes in, they pay you money, and they're like, coach my kid and do whatever you want. And so it's like, okay, well, then I'm going to run this as a research facility because I want to know what works and what doesn't. And I have your blessing, but when I go to pro ball now, I have players, they didn't choose me, right? They didn't, they didn't choose me as their coach. They just, they got handed me as their coach. So if I sit there now, I'm screwing up this guy's career, or at least what he feels like I'm wasting time in his career. Now I've got to reevaluate my method. So it's just, it's different perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, how long did it kind of take you to figure that piece of it out too? I mean, cause that's an ongoing evolution piece as a coach too, is, you know, and there's different times of the year for, for all of that stuff. I think I'm still figuring it out, to be honest. You know, this is my fourth year in too. professional I'm not baseball. Even yeah. anymore, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. I still think about mistakes that I made for 22 years oh. that all the time, it's like, okay, I could have done that differently. I could have done this differently. I could have helped this guy a little bit better if I had handled this a little bit differently. I just, I still think about it all the time in a good way because you're still trying to evolve. Absolutely. Well, how much, so you talked about routines. So are you helping them develop or talk, communicate with their routines? Are, is it pretty wide open with what they do? Or do you guys kind of hand them like, hey, we'd like for you to do this, this, and this with their routines? Or do you give it, kind of hand it over to them? 
A little bit of both. I would say everything starts with the player plan, right? So we've got this overarching player plan. Stoney's built an incredible system here where we all have access to everything. So we know exactly what their player plan is. And we have a ton of data to back up like, hey, if you swing and miss in rookie ball a lot, you're probably going to swing and miss more at low A and swing and miss even more than that at high A. So it's like, okay, so we got to tackle the swing and miss, right? So we have this player plan. And then we leave it up to our, us, the coordinators. There's two of us, myself and Steven Polikov. So we have our, we go out to the affiliates and we talk to the coaches and try to come up with the best methods that the coaches then go implement. So ultimately it comes from the coaches, but it's underneath our systems umbrella of this is what we think we need to tackle right now. And then obviously there's input from the player too, because it's their career. And I think we're really, really good at, as an organization of having empathy and having respect for the player in their process of owning their career. And so it's, it's always a conversation and we have, we go over it once a month with them and that's a time when they can start to switch stuff up. And every once in a while you get a player that comes in the cage and they say, Hey, I saw this on the internet. I saw this on Twitter, or they'll say, Hey, I was talking to my buddy and he was talking about this drill, or they'll see another player do a drill in the cage next to him. And then they'll try it. They'll just hop in and try it. And then all of a sudden it becomes a part of their routine and it's ever changing for sure. But I think the players that for the most part hammer their two or three things that they need to get them right. Those are the players that end up being the most consistent. Where's that fine line between making adjustments and maybe tweaking too much for a player? You tell me, I don't know. I, <laughs> it's it's again, hard. That right? depends on the, on the kid too. But I, you know, so many guys it's like, okay, they take two bad swings and they want to switch something. It's like, no, like, just you're not going to make contact all the time. Like here, here's what it looks like. Here's where you're trying to get to. You got to be a little bit patient with the process too. And also not get away from your strengths too. Yeah. And you, ultimately it comes down to how well, you know, the player, you have to know what they need and you have to know when they need it. I think that's, that's the art of coaching and that's the art of people just in general is, you know, I I've learned to ask players, are you, do you want, are you just venting right now? Or do you want my advice? Because if they're just venting, like, no, I'm just venting. Like, just listen to me for a second. All right, cool. Go ahead. Like, that's fine. Get, get a little pissed off, get a little angry and then work through it in your head and get over it. Or do you want my advice? And at that time, then you can interject it. And sometimes it's, it's the players might not come to you all the time and you just have to be like, Hey, Let's put your arm around them and say, hey, let's let's go talk after practice and let's go, you know, let's go have a meeting and let's just talk it out. And I think sometimes that's what they need. So it's just about getting to know your personnel. And, you know, now in my position, I, I had maybe at, in 2021, I had 21 players that 21 position players that were under my instruction. because I was a rookie ball hitting coach and in 2022. It was a little smaller. I think I had 17 or 18. And now I've got 80 because I'm a coordinator. So I've got to worry about everybody. And so it's a little bit harder to know that where and when, and that's why it's so important that we talk to the hitting coaches and we talk to them regularly and get a feel for what that player needs. Because ultimately I'd like it to come from the hitting coach. They're with them every single day. I'm just here to help and support, but sometimes I'm the reinforcement that the coach needs to get through to a player. So it's just really getting to know those players and you have to stay ready. What about split between on-field hitting and cage time? Uh, in what, in what aspect are you asking that question? Any, any aspect. I mean, I know the season's probably much different for those guys, isn't it? What about now for, for your off season time for those guys? 
when they get back going, are they going to be strictly kind of getting loose in the cage and getting built back up before they start to see live arms or, you know, this time in the off season, you know, what's it for them? When will they start to see live arms? Um, well, the guys in our instructor right now are seeing live arms. Yes. We play three to four games a week. Yeah. The guys in the off season, let's say there's an absolute normal off season for a player. Yes. So they're not playing winter ball anywhere. They're not, you know, doing something else. A normal off season, they would probably take October off pick up a bat November 1st, start hitting in a cage maybe two to three times a week, maybe hitting out on the field once or twice a week. And then as you get to December, maybe that increases to on the field twice, two to three times a week. And then once you get to January, it's like, all right, we're five days a week now, maybe even six to get ready for spring training. So it's it's different. I mean, I think that's probably a really good that, – that, that would be a normal offseason for for a player and then if you're playing winter ball it's like when do you shut it down when do you start it back up if you're playing in the fall league when do you start that it's it's different for every player um and that's that i think you know you were talking about college baseball and i completely agree with you that college baseball has some stuff figured out for sure but in college baseball everybody has the same the off same season schedule. yes they're on the same they're on the same schedule so we have guys that are you know just it's it's so different and it's so individualized it makes it tough doesn't mean it can't be done, but it makes it makes it really tough because there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, I mean, those guys, I mean, you, you know this better than anybody. Those guys that play winter ball, I mean, do they drag at all in spring training or are they still rolling pretty good when they get to spring training? Because they've been pretty much playing for 12 months. So, I mean, I, it's, I know it's, it's kind of up to the guy. Thing. It's a money thing for those guys. It is. Yeah. It's a money thing, which I completely understand. Some- Sometimes it is. And I think, uh, sometimes it's a money thing. I think the, especially the Latin American players really love going home and playing in the Dominican in the, you know, playing winter ball there. I know the, the I would Puerto love Rican it too. guys watching like those play. games. I would I love can't. it too. I'd want to go play. It's incredible. And, but for some guys it's, you know, we've got guys that started playing halfway through the year cause they were dealing with an injury. So for those guys, it's a way to get us extra games, you know, and it, cause you need a certain number of at-bats before you make the big leagues. And so if you're injured all the time, you play when you can. So if you can get more at-bats, that's that's a good way to steal some at-bats. What about situational hitting, time to work on that, as opposed to working on your swing? Oh, this is fun. This is something we talk about a lot, and I have been actively picking the brains of a lot of people that are not in pro baseball because I think as the industry moves towards – understanding how production is actually happening and trying to get that to happen more often. We understand that we want to hit the ball hard and we want to hit it in the air. Right. And we want to obviously like hit a bunch of home runs, drive in a bunch of runs. That's what we want to do to score runs for our team. Understood. That is where we should be probably 95% of the time, but the 5% of at bats that you have that you can actually have a productive out we should be working on that. Now, where that fits in in the day is tough, right? Like obviously I don't want it to I don't want to work on it during the cage time when they're working on their swing. That's not a time to work on backside ground balls to the second baseman unless a player needs to think hit a backside ground ball to the second baseman to get a swing to work right. Then it's that's different. But obviously the outcome is not it, that's the income. That's not what we want the outcome to be. That's just the thought that gets us to produce that's a better result. Right. Yep. Correct. And then when we're out on the field, it's like, okay, so if I'm in BP and I've got 
25 swings. I've got five rounds of five. How many of those swings do I want to spend on situational hitting? Right. Three, four, that would be what, like 10%. So it's like, now I'm, I'm trying to toggle when and where to use those swings. And a lot of times it's, it's conversations and it's showing guys how to get rewarded even when they miss hit a ball, I think is probably the most effective way to do stuff like that. Um, so hey, for example, World, like, I mean, it, it, that's where I, that's why yeah. I love playoff time. Cause it's like, okay, this is where all those things show up. So it's like, okay, we're going to have a runner at third and one out here in a big situation. And we may just need to move, a, move the ball here to get a guy in. I know that's hard with the stuff that they're facing. You know, that that's as, sure. as a fan sitting at home, it's like, how come he can't put the ball in play here? I'm like, well, he's facing one Oh three with a 95 mile an hour slider. That's easier said than done that a guy can just get a ball and play like, especially because they're trying to do damage in there too. So it's tough. So that, you know, that's, I always think about that. It's like what that, that's that fine line of it shows up in the, in the playoffs, but we may not get to that point all season, but we may have to try to drive a guy in, in that situation where we just have to move the ball, but it's hard when you haven't had to really do it all year either. Yeah. And you have, it's very different. There's, there's so many situations that you'll never be prepared. Like in in our line of work, in our industry that you'll never be prepared for until you actually get to the big leagues. So we just moved up Pete Crow Armstrong to the big leagues. Right. And he's been a lead off. I read the article. He he gave you a bunch of great compliments. He's an incredible kid, just incredible human. Love the kid. Want nothing, but the, uh, I hope that guy makes, $700 $700 million playing baseball because he deserves it. He's an incredible guy. But uh, yeah, the, like he's he goes up to the big leagues and he gets a start and he hits ninth. Pete Crow Armstrong has never hit ninth in his life, right? So how do we prepare him for that? Do we take him? And, and this is a conversation that we've had, right? Do we take him and do we have him hit ninth to get him ready for the big leagues where we know he's eventually going to be every once in a while just to give him some experience? Right. We have Matt Mervis that goes up to the big leagues and maybe he has to come in and pinch hit for a right handed batter when there's a ready on the mound. Has he ever pinch hit before? You know, so there's all of these situations where it's like we can prepare them, but at what expense, like at what cost? So at some point there has to be and it's probably more in the double A and triple A range for us when that trade off starts to happen, because now they're getting close to the big leagues where winning is important. You know, if you're just going to talk dollars and cents, winning is worth dollars, right? So we now have to teach them how to win for us and also for them too, so that they can stay up there and then they can get what they want too. So it's, it's a constant conversation that we have, but you know, I think, I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibilities to think that we couldn't work on it a couple times a week, right? Uh, You know, have a bunting station. I know in, in our low A affiliate, uh, Buddy Bailey, legendary manager, has a bunting rotation every single Tuesday. Every single first day of the week, he has a bunting rotation that their guys have to go through. And guess what? Their team bunts. And when they need to get a bunt down, they get down. So that's what he does once a week. I don't think that's outside of the realm of possibility to think when we can get it in. But we are always have this watchful eye of like, as long as it doesn't sacrifice their long-term development. So finding that training economy I think is, is the difficult part. And I don't know the answer I've been asking. So if you've got anything for me, please let me know. It's just that fine line because you know, it's going to show up in games that matter, but you also don't want to take away from their strengths either at times because they're not going to need it all the time. But it's that, again, it's that 5% where they need it. Like, okay, we need you to get the job done. But I always think about Matt Williams, 
when the Diamondbacks won the, the World Series, Matt Williams got a sack bunt down in that World Series. They pulled it up. He hadn't put a bunt down in nine years. He hadn't sack bunted in nine years. So again, I'm sure he didn't probably work on bunting at all. But he got yep. it down because again, that's the competitive side of him. Like he had, he's done it at some point. But that was the I was like, holy cow! It's been nine years for that guy. But he, it, in the biggest moment, he showed up and he and he got it done. But you know, Joey Votto talks about that a little bit too. I think good hitters can do the job when they need whatever that job is that needs to get done. They're going to get that job done. That's what elite hitters can do. Completely agree. And I think too, like you know, we have. Last year, our high A team won a championship. This year, a double A team is competing for a championship with a lot of the same guys. Uh, Myrtle Beach, our low A affiliate, was in the playoffs. Like when you have opportunities, and and if we're if we're doing our job in, as a player development system of creating good players who can contribute together, and we win as an organization, that's important. Then that is a time where we actually get meaningful reps of how to work on this stuff, right? Not a junior hack growing and working on bunting, which does matter you need that but at the same time you also need to know what it feels like to be in a situation like matt williams where i'm sure he's done that at some point in his life yes. is what i'm getting at right at least he had something probably to refer to um to get to go back to and say oh yeah i remember what getting a bunt down is like and i probably thought it was easy when i did it so i'm just gonna go up there and just do it so um the yeah, mini, the mini hack is the uh, the t of the bunning world so the the mini yeah. hack is like the t for hitters so that's for the, sure. the initial place to start. I mean, how gratifying is it for you to have homegrown talent make it to the big leagues? It's great. You know, we've completely, you know, even when I was hired, just the, the type of player that we have in our organization now versus four years ago is night and day better. We're more physical. We're in better shape. We just are better ball players. We we used to have a lot of high risk, high reward guys. You know, a lot of we we had some guys like with some juice that could hit the ball really hard. And then but they also had like a 40% punch rate. And now we're starting to get to more of we still have those dudes, but they can hit a little bit now too. And so you're starting to see that as an organization just with our our player development system, our training methods. We have the best hitting coaches in professional baseball. I don't care what anybody says. I would go to, I would ride or die with every single hitting coach we have in our organization. They're incredible. And they really create training environments that push the players to find barrels. And that's really just carried on. And then our strength and conditioning department just keeps getting these guys stronger, healthier. They stay on the field longer. They can do it more often. It's, it's a pretty well-oiled machine at this point. Um, so it's, it, we, we have a fun organization to watch for sure. Do you think that's why more college hitters are getting drafted earlier because there's a longer track record on them from a swing and miss standpoint? Yeah, I, I would imagine so. I had an old-time um, also... scout two years ago. I was in carry at the USA trials for the college team. That was a great week because it was like 12U, 15, you know, you saw every level and old-time scout. He's like, since they've been keeping max prep stats for high schoolers, there hasn't been one make it to the big leagues that had over like an 18% K rate in high school. Because it's the same yeah. thing as you go up levels. If you're swinging and missing, it's just, <laughs> whether it's their swing, it's probably not their swing. It's probably cognitively, whether it's their eyesight or whether it's how their brain works to anticipate where the ball's ending up at home plate, their wiring just doesn't work like the elite of the elite. And I was going to ask you the difference between the guys that make it and the ones that don't. 
you know, what are you seeing? Like the ones that maybe maybe get to double A AA or triple A, but don't get that. I know I know some of it's luck, but don't get that opportunity. Sure. A lot of it's luck. It is being in the right yeah, place it is. at the right time. I mean, look at the Orioles organization. You know, they've got some guys that are in the minor leagues right now that are big leaguers, but they are they're stuck. You know, they're yep. they're, they're stuck. So they do got, we. They got they got no they got <laughs> yeah. nowhere to go, and it's a numbers game. You can't have sixty players in the big leagues. And that's the the cool thing with paying attention to what front offices do because it's like okay you have all this talent, who do you move? Who do you keep? You know, and that that's the art of making those front office decisions because you're gonna have those decisions to make every year. Who do you who do you let go? Who do you trade? Who do you keep? You know, th- those are the tough things for the front office, which the, it's for fascinating sure. the way they do that though. Yeah, the different. I think the difference between the players that make it or don't is just. A, it's not talent. In some cases, it's talent. You have guys. There's we a have barrier of entry to get there. For sure. That, it's a great way to put it. Well said. And But once you cross over that threshold of you're good enough, it's like, okay, the best players do it consistently. They do it every single day, and they compete, man. They compete. And I think there there are a lot of soft baseball players that you see that just – they fizzle out in double A because either they're not, they maybe have like a flaw that we know is like hindering them from having the performance that they want. It's like, Hey, we want you to work on this. And there's fear of like, well, if I go all in on this, am I going to give up this part of me? Right. And then there's also like a stubbornness too, um, that I really like from good players. I think really good players take ownership of their process and they use their coaches when they need them, but they know what they need. So there's there's like an awareness that comes with, you know, the players that make it that I see where it's like, okay, I hear you and I listen to, I appreciate that you're trying to help me, but like, I'm going to do this the way I think it needs to be done because I know what I need. And so there's, it, it's, it's different in that regard from player to player, but I think just that natural edge to compete and to do the work consistently day in and day out when you're not feeling good. Well, they have joy for it. You know, that's the thing. Like they, they have joy, they have joy for working. They have joy for competing. Like it takes away a lot of that fear, you know, and, and, and they take these mundane things that the average person doesn't want to do and they'll do them to the best of their ability. They'll, they'll excel at them. They're, they're really good at excelling at things that they don't want to do. Like that's the, not, not just in baseball, like in any walk of life, the people that are excellent, they're really good at taking maybe something that somebody doesn't want to do, and they'll actually have some joy for that because it's just part of it's in their their makeup, it's in their DNA. A yep. Bit. Well said. Completely agree. Where would you start with amateur hitters? You know, because we, we get a what wide age? range of coaches listening in. Where would you start with an amateur hitter right now? Say say, uh, say, say you're going back and working with a 12 year old in a cage right now. Where would you start with? That? Uh, I would say, first of all, that it has to be fun for them. You just talked about joy, right? You got to make it fun for them. And so I, I wouldn't be the coach that's well, – I'll, t- I'll tell you what I wouldn't do, okay, before I tell you what I would do. i tell you what I wouldn't do. I would not tell the player, you know, hey, I know you've been hitting with this coach, but that coach has screwed you up. Oh, no. I'm going to help you. I, I wouldn't do that, okay? Don't do that. That's don't don't completely poo poo on this player's process yes. and mom and dad. They were part of that wallet. process too. Like th- yeah. that's the thing for me. It's like okay, 
Yeah, you're you may be bad mouthing, but they were in the cage with that person, so like they're 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 part of that process as well. Absolutely. When you sit there and you bash another coach that a player's had, you immediately now have just looked at their mom and dad and said, "You just you didn't know how to spend your money." Yes. And and you just insulted them without even you probably didn't mean to, but you did. Yes. So it's like I would say the first thing I would do with a young hitter is just find out where they're at. You know, what have you worked on? You know, what kind of player do you want to be? What kind of team do you play on? What level of competition? I would get to know them first and then figure out how you can try to help them. But I would always start with like, if you can get your eyes on or get your hands on some sort of, even if it's a blast sensor, get a hundred dollar blast sensor and start with the lowest hanging fruit. If something jumps off at you, and just be like, okay, this is a flaw in their swing, then attack that. And then stick with that until you get to the next thing versus always trying to switch it up every single day. And I did this as a young coach, so I, I, I'm literally speaking we, we on it fr- from experience. Oh, my gosh. You know, especially in the lesson world, you get a player once a week, and you're like, this week I'm going to do this, and the next week I'm going to do this, and it's going to be awesome, and the next week I'm going to do this. And then before you know it, you've exposed this player to a thousand different training environments and they haven't gotten any better. So it's like, okay, find out you should, you should start with a, you know, paint with a broad brush. And then eventually you start to, those brush strokes start to get smaller and smaller and you start to get more targeted on what they do, but just get to know them, you know, find out where they're at in their process, because you might tell them, you might think you have it all figured out with this one drill. It's like, Ooh, this player needs this drill and you do it for three weeks. And then you find out that player just, they did it for the last six months. It didn't work. So get to know them first. I had six-year-olds uh, tossing six-pound med balls at youth camp, youth hitting camp this summer. We started with jump backs and scoop tosses. Love that. And Love uh, that. The facility that I was with, it, they didn't have a core velocity belt, but if they'd had a core velocity belt, then we would have strapped that on the, the young guys too. Just, I, I think yeah. that the movement-based piece, allowing them to be athletic in their movements, I think that, you know, Yes, you have to modify those. They can't be chucking really heavy weight, but I think you can do a lot of those movement-based exercises that help the older guys. You can you do that with the younger guys to help them be more athletic. We'd have them squat down and jump. You know, for me, that's an, yeah. that's an old school thing. Like we would, we worked on hinging. Um, you know, we just did all the things that I think allow them to be better athletes, which I think are going to carry over with their swing if you can help them, and that's something that. I think so many times people want to focus on on the swing, which is good, but there's a lot of other movement-based things that you can do with oh the my young, young bucks to help them be athletic because they don't get enough of that in school anymore. You know, just yes, there's so many things that you can do with that split squats. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do that are going to transfer over into the swing that you can still do those with the young guys. That's why I like working youth camp still because I'm able to still tinker around and um, and still communicate with the younger kids. Mm-hmm. Like I, I really enjoy that piece. Hey, you mentioned it with social media. How how do amateur players and parents filter through the noise? I mean, you have pro players that are gonna look at social media and come to to the field the next day and say, "I saw this." So, how do parents and and young players kind of filter through the noise that's out there too? That's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, when I, I have to filter through it, right. Because sometimes you find something that's really good and then you have to consider the source and you're like, okay, that still would be a really good drill. And I could use that, but maybe I don't want to associate myself with this specific person or whatever. Um, or give them my money for as part of a subscription service or whatever. I would like, for me, my filtration process is when I listen to you, 
does it sound like you're trying to help me or does it sound like you're trying to tell me what to do? There's a complete difference in, in those tones. And so I think when I, when I listen to someone, it's, it's always going to be like, do I believe you? Like, do I believe you have my best interests at heart? Are you trying to grow the game right now? Or are you just trying to take money out of my, out of my wallet? Now there's nothing wrong with making money. I gave lessons yeah. for, I still give lessons. There's nothing wrong with taking money for something that you've worked for a lot of years for. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's your sole interest in pushing what you're doing, then now I don't believe you. Now I don't believe I, you have my best interests at heart. And or are you just trying to start a war on the internet too? There's a lot of those people too. So I think filtering through it is like myself from all of that now. Like I don't even pay attention to the when people start fighting on social. I just I just don't even pay attention to it anymore. It's just not worth it. Yeah, it's that I, there's a lot of people muted and blocked on my Twitter feed for sure. Um, so I completely, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It gets exhausting at times, but yeah. And, and even like YouTube, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad people that don't know that they're bad too. And so not that they're not good people. That's, that's the, the kicker here is like, there are some people that just like don't provide good content. It's just very like rudimentary stuff that like we've kind of moved past that is not exactly what you need. So what I would suggest to parents is if, if you're out there trying to sift through something on the internet, if you find a drill or a person or something that you like, whether it's on TikTok, on Twitter, whatever it is, go research the person who put it out there. And if they can provide some sort of training plan for your kid that has, that is rooted in some sort of substance those are people that I would listen to. If it's just like, here's a drill for this. This is this. If it sounds like a magic pill, get out of there because there is no magic pill. It's going to take diligent, hard work every single day for you to get better. And if that person isn't selling that dream, then they're not, they're not selling anything. I would want to see an on-ramp competition. Like if I'm asking somebody, Hey, we're going to go work in the facility I want to see your 12-month calendar plan for the hitter, but I want to see an on-ramp to when we start to see live pitching and when, when they have to start I like competing. Because I think that gets lost in the shuffle. Like, there, you know, we talked about this. The offseason is different, okay? That might be a time to, to work on some things here and there. But as we get closer to competition and the bullets start flying, now it's time to see ball, hit ball, and go in and put my best swing on it. There's an on-ramp to that piece, and and you have to see live pitching at some point. You have to, like, and and for sure, or at least get close to it. Whether that's with machines or overhand throwing, and I, I know not everybody can do that, but at least with machines. So as they get four weeks out from having to see a live pitcher, that plan needs to shift a little bit to where we're starting to get in more of a competitive mode. Um, especially with the young kids, that might be where we do some situational hitting. Hey, or even if it's just game-winning mm -hmm. run, these last five swings are game-winning run with the hitter at third base or game-winning run with the runner at second base to get in that competitive mindset where, again, then they don't lock up in games because that's what you see yep. a lot with the younger kids is they work so much in the cage, they start to see live pitching, and then they lock up because they haven't been put in those situations. And it's, Correct. Com it's completely foreign for them because they haven't been put in those situations. And that's part of yeah. helping so, them as a facility person is helping them compete. In it. That, that was the thing that would crack me up is I would talk to the facility guys. They would call and they would recommend a kid. I'm like, hey, have you watched them play in a game? Well, no, I haven't seen them play. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I know the swing plays in yeah. the cage, but have you gone and actually watched them play in a game? 
And they're like, yep. no. I'm like, okay, well, I, I still need to see him play. Like, I know the swing looks good. Yep. On, I know the swing looks really good in the cage, but there's so many different factors with hitting and, and swing. Well, that's the, the art of hitting and the science of the swing. Those are, those are two, that's two completely different things. Very true. I have a question for you, though. So what do you do then if a player, if you're in a facility and a player comes to you in July and they want hitting lessons and they still have a month left of their summer season, right? Like, where where do you, like, okay, I need to be productive now? Or do you just tell the parent, like, hey, don't even worry about the rest of the summer. No, the, the question uh, We're going to go with this on. The question that, that I'm gonna, that's That's the, it, that's if, the rub, right? If for it's the July person. and they walk in the first thing I'm going to ask the players, what are you struggling with in game? That That's that's the conversation that we're going to have is one, why are you in here right now? Obviously you, you came in here for a reason because if you were hitting a thousand right now, there's no way you're walking in the facility right now. So ask the player, what are you struggling in game with right now? And then back chain from there. Okay. This is, this is where I'm having issues. Is it pitch recognition? I mean, there again, there's a lot of variables. Am I not hitting the ball hard? And I think once you ask that question and you let them answer, then I think you can back chain from there on the plan that you might put in place in July while they're still competing. Like, I think I think you right. can do that, but I think you have to ask them. Don't just assume, you know, that I'm going to do this, this, and this after they swing. I think you need to ask them, like, what are you struggling with in game? And let, let's back chain from there and see if we can help you for your next game. You know, yep. and, and that's where that's where you have the short-term goals, the intermediate goals and long-term goals. So, you know, if they're struggling in game right now, and it might be a simple, uh, have you ever worked on breathing techniques? Cause mm -hmm. chances are if a 12 year old or 13 year old walks into your facility, they have never worked on breathing and they don't know how to breathe properly. So that might be another place to start with them. Okay. What are you doing when you're fifth up? Are you getting all your equipment? Do you have your equipment in one spot? So you're not sped up trying to find all your stuff. You know, when, when you're up fourth, are you stretching, breathing? When you're in the hole, are you getting timing down? When you're on deck, are you playing the at-bat? You know, I, I do this with the little guys in camp. We talk about the cycle of success. With little guys, I'm talking to six-year-olds about the cycle of success. When you're on deck, are you playing the at-bat with the guy that's hitting in front of you? And every swing that you take, you're either reading a pitch out of the hand, it's a ball. If it's a ball, you're taking it. If it's a strike out of the hand, if it looks like a strike, you're swinging. And then as you walk to home plate, big body language. And, you know, when, when you ask the little kids, what's the first thing that you should do before you get in the box? They don't know. Well, who do you have to look at? I have to look at the third base coach. Okay. But you have to practice all that. Take a deep breath, get in yep. the box, whatever in-game routine, in-box routine. You know, I, with my son, we didn't really do much with his swing growing up other than breathing techniques and when you get in the box, tap home plate, tap the outside, tap the inside, waggle out the pitcher, and tap the back of your shoulder. And he seemed to do okay without even really mm -hmm. doing a whole lot with the swing. But, yeah, that's where I would ask them in those situations. But, again, a lot of breathing techniques for me take care of a lot of with the little guys, the, the fear part yep. of it for, for boys and girls. You know, that deep cleansing breath in through the nose and out through the nose, just that right there might be enough to fix – everything that they have going on because they're going to see the and, and exactly and if it works for them once they're going to want to do it again and then <laughs> exactly. it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if it's actually the thing that made it good it just it worked and it's a thing that they can now go to yes that says so you gave them something right and it's yes. it's it's funny because as you're talking I'm, I'm thinking about like 
you know, pro baseball, we get, we are lesson coaches essentially, right? We work in the cages one-on-one with guys. We get, we see them every day. Now once a week, we see them every day. Right. And then we get to go out on the field and we get to see how they perform out on the field, which is something that a, a person who gives lessons does not get. They don't get to go hit on on the field, maybe once in a while, but not very much. And then we get to see them play in the game. And so we get all three aspects of them. We get them mentally, how they perform on the field. Is there a disconnect between BP, between five o'clock and seven o'clock? Right. Is there a disconnect between three o'clock and five o'clock? Right. So where, where is that breakdown happening and why? And that's why I think it is. And this is something when I got into pro ball, I didn't realize how much I missed being part of a team and watching the game. I, I missed it. And I didn't realize it because I was having fun in my facility, teaching kids how to swing the bat really, really well. But I really like I missed. I never got to go watch them play because when they would play, I was working. Right. I'm in, I'm in the cage while they're out playing. And so I can't go watch them play. And if I can, it's like the one day out of the month that I have free and I probably don't want to spend it at the ball field. Right. So it's like, where do you draw that line of, you know, work-life balance? But it's like the, we do need to watch them play. Like everything you just said is only comes from experience of watching games, right? Everybody wants to be a hitting guru when you're in the cage, but if you don't have that game context, the game is always the best teacher. Always. The game will always tell you what you need and we should work backwards from there. So I love what you said because it's very true, even with young kids, is like I can, you know, even if you ask a six-year-old, right, they're playing coach pitch. Well, okay, well, what do you struggle with in a game? Well, I can hit the ball when it's really high, but I can't hit it when it's really low. They know. They'll tell you. And it's like, okay, well, let's work on that, right? So it's just the game will always tell you what you need and I, I will never be a better teacher than the game, no matter how good we think we are as coaches the game is always a better one how do you help the young like the rookies acclimate to your guys schedule they've probably never gone through that type of schedule where it's okay both teams take bp you know you guys take in and out beforehand still probably even the the rookie guys they take in and out before batting practice yes i I think that's been a great switch honestly i think more college teams are going to it it makes more sense to me they get their arm up they take in and out then they take batting practice it just i'm like it's one of those things like i should have thought about that a long time ago yeah but but how do you help them because they've never really had to go through that length of time to get ready for a game i mean how do you help them through that process well it depends on when we get them so let's say we get a high schooler right out of the draft right? They come in, there's helping them acclimate is mostly just like we have, we don't let them go and play. So it's not like they show up and it's like, Hey, you're in there tomorrow. Like there's an on-ramp process that we have to get them through, right? They have to go through their physicals. They have to make, we have to make sure they're healthy. Then they have to go through S and C has to say, you're built up enough to play. And so it's over the course of like, probably it at the very fastest it's usually about a two-week process and by the last three or four days of that two-week process they're already taking live bp so before they get into a game at least we're giving them some live action right and we're just building them up now that's after the draft and that's usually we only rush guys if we have to send them out so if we draft a college guy and we want to get them out they're they're in and out in two weeks because we want to get them out and get them as many games as we can so that we can get some information on them and get them the feel of what it feels like to compete in a Cubs uniform. Like that's, that's of utmost importance to us. But for the rookies, like the high school guys, we can keep them back and that process gets a little bit longer. And so they're kind of on their own 
their own little draft group. There's like four or five position players that kind of just like they hit in the same groups during BP. They take the same in in and out. They probably don't play in the game, but they might have some live BPs. So their day is a little bit lighter. And then we slowly build them up until they can inject into game action. And usually it's about the last month of the season. And good for those guys to, to sit and watch too. They've never had to probably sit and watch a baseball game before. Like it's good for those guys to actually sit and watch a game because they've never had to do it before. And yep. if they make it to the big leagues, they're going to sit the bench for a little bit. They're going to sit the bench for a little bit. There's a very rare guy that just comes in and lights the world on fire and he plays every day. It doesn't work that way. You talked about strength and conditioning signing off. What are the assessments that they're doing with them to, okay, they're healthy enough to go out and, and do this? What are you guys assessing? I know it's something pro- you probably can't get into, but what are the assessments that they're using to make sure they're they're healthy? There's probably stuff I could get into that I just don't know because there's probably yeah. way more intricate stuff that I don't your, see. I know that's yeah. on – you probably don't see it as much. I know they probably just come to you and be like, okay, that, that player's cleared. Yeah, I know they do um, – there's like a counter-movement jump test that they do. Um, there's a bunch of running tests that they do. Uh, you know, even it, like simple like 8-touch, 10-touch stuff, we still do that. And that's usually as part of guys on-ramping and return-to-play protocol is like they've got an eight touch on field two to make sure that they don't pull a hammy while they're running out the double. So stuff like that. Uh, And then there's probably some arc progressions that they've done. And just basically uh, like the running part seems to be the last part. And that's the part I always see, but I know there's a bunch of strength tests that they do in, and we've done a bunch over the years that change every year, depending on who our coordinators are and who our directors are. And we've had a little bit of turnover, but some things I know we've done in the past, we've done the ash test, which is where you have the arm over your head, you know, you push the thing down and we've done like uh, Nordic hamstring curls and done that test. Um, so we've done a variety of different things. Um, it's a little different now just because we have two new minor league coordinators. We've got one for pitching and one for hitting specifically, which is really cool. And we have a new, you know, overlying like umbrella of SNC now, minor league coordinator. So we've got a lot of cool things that we do. But most of what I see just when I'm out on the field is I see a lot of the running. You know, a lot of people are like, I want to be a pro baseball coach. And for me, it's like, I know what you all do. And somebody from the outside looking in, like, they don't really understand, like, what the actual component is. I think people just want to put a pro uniform on, but they don't want to do everything that it takes to keep one on. You know, that when the IBM GM was about to get fired, he said, every job looks easy to the person that's not doing it. And for somebody that's wanting to get into pro baseball, like really what does, I mean, it's 24 seven for y'all outside of sleeping. Correct. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's an interesting job because like there's you you can't take a sick day i mean like you can you can if you're sick we'll send you home but you can't just be like "Mm, i don't feel like going to work today i'm gonna use use my p i'm gonna use my pto today like what is that we don't get that our pto is between the months of october and january that's when we get it right because we got off season and even if you're you're scheduled to be here you have a ton of downtime so um, we don't get that. And I, I think that's, that makes it hard for a lot of people. I think what I wish more people would understand is if you, you better make sure, like if you come into this position married or with a significant other, that foundation better be very solid because you're going to be very challenged with a position like this, just not only with all the time you spend working, but all the time you spend away, 
and traveling. And the, the, what I just said is like, Hey, I can't just, you know, call my wife and say, Hey, let's take a sick day together. When, you, when and your go. best friend asks you to yeah. be in a wedding, that's a no, like, sorry, yep. I can't, yep. you, you schedule, sorry, you schedule the wedding at the wrong time of the year for me. Yep. And so I think there's that, but there's also like, you know, there's freedom in discipline in that we know exactly what our schedule is. I know exactly what my schedule is going to be tomorrow. I know exactly what my schedule is going to be next Wednesday. So it's very routine based. So, you know, and you can build yourself a routine uh, much more than you can in probably some other professions, but it's, it's challenging. I think what I wish a lot of people would know is how physical the job is. You know, you, you got to keep yourself in good shape. You know, there's a reason why you see, you know, we walk in at six in the morning and you see coaches lifting because we got to keep ourselves in shape. It's a very physical job. And, you know, I got to throw a, round of batting practice every single day. Like I got to keep my arm in shape. So, you know, taking care of your body and understanding how physical it is, you know, by the time you get to the big leagues, you can kind of cool out a little bit because you got people on staff that'll maybe throw some BP for you, you know, and you can let your boiler grow a little bit and all that stuff. But at the minor league level, man, it's a grind. It's a very, very physical job. And that's guys that that's one of the first things when people call, I'm like, can you throw batting practice? They're like, no, I'm like, well, somebody else can and can do can do your job just as well and they can also throw bp like i'm sorry like that's the barrier of entry to get in there like sorry there's certain jobs entail this and that's part of it hitting a fungo still kind of important at times like all that stuff still matters and sorry like and and you know what then work on it you know if that's what you really want if that's what you really want to do like if you're really passionate and that's what you really want to do, then just work on it. Get fit. It doesn't have to be great. Just get it serviceable if that's really what you want to do. But it, it's always comical to me because they're like, yeah, I want to be a pro ball coach. I'm like, no, like I, I know you and you don't. <laughs> I, it I, takes, I know it takes a very, it takes a very, and you, you know what, like too, a, a baseball team is a, it's a corporation, right? It's, there's a ton of people, especially pro baseball, man. I thought I had everything figured out when I came from the facility. I was like, you know, you're in your own little bubble. I'm responsible for everything. I'm responsible for the programming. I'm responsible for the day-to-day. I'm the I'm on the floor coaching kids. I'm doing everything. I'm responsible for the business side. And now I get into pro coaching and it's like, you're a hitting coach. And it's like, I don't have to worry about any of that other stuff, which is cool. That was a blessing for me. But if I wanted to make a swing change with a player, I got to now go to my coordinator and I got to go, my coordinator's got to talk to the director. The director's got to check it with R&D. R&D's got to then filter it back down to the hitting coordinator. And then it's like, okay, we want, we agree you can make that swing change. And that is a, that takes communication skills like I was not prepared for. And so you have to have really good communication skills. I honestly think that's the first thing. I, I'm, in, I'm in a position now where I have a little bit of say on who we hire. Like I'm at least involved in the interview process. And so now I can look and it's like, if your communication skills, like if I don't feel like I can just have like a conversation with you, like I can't hire you yes. because you're not going to go through the appropriate chain of command to get done what we need done in a timely manner because you don't know how to communicate. And that that's a no for me. That's you're automatically out. And you also have to have thick skin too. Like, you know, you're, you're going to get told no sometimes, you know, it's, it's being an assistant coach too. It's like, you're going to get your head coach is going to tell you no sometimes like it's okay. And you have to be okay with that. And and if you get told, no, it's okay. Don't get butt hurt and just move on and make an adjustment from there. Yep. Do you have a fail forward moment? Do you have something you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now was, was helped you move forward. 
Oh, fail forward moment. I probably have a ton. Um, I can tell you that one of the most monumental shifts in my career was, so after I got hired by the Cubs, so I got hired, two things happened that allowed me to be in the position that I'm in right now. And both of them are very unfortunate things, but they ended up being blessings for me specifically. One of them was COVID. So I got hired in 2019, showed up for instructs in January, and then had three days of minor league spring training and the world shut down. And I was like, okay, first of all, I thought I was going to get fired. I was like, yeah, this experiment's over. Like they're probably, you know, everybody was like cutting payroll, cutting, you know, personnel, everything. So I was like, I'm going to get fired. So I didn't, which is great. But what I did get was I got a year of Zoom calls, just like we're doing now. And I got a year of, I did, I did every interview, every podcast. I got to talk to so many people and learn from them and hear their perspectives. But we also like, as a hitting group, got into this regular cadence of like meeting every week. And it gave me a chance of like, oh, okay, this is how this works. And this is how this works. And this is who I need to talk to when I need this. And this is who I need to talk to when I need this. I didn't know anything about professional baseball. The thing about when you hire people for professional baseball positions, they usually are professional or were professional baseball players. So they at least have some understanding of how the system works. I was a professional softball player. I got, I showed up, I had one pair of shorts, one shirt, a pair of cleats and a helmet laying on my locker. And it was like, Hey, we practice at three o'clock and it's at the high school down the street. Get yourself there. There was no food. There's no spread after the game. There was nothing. So I didn't know how this whole big machine worked. Right. So I did, that was like a huge blessing for me. Cause I, I know had I coached in 2020, I would have worn people out because I would have tried to overdo my presence and my role without understanding that I was part of a system and I wasn't the thing, right. Which is what I was used to being in, in my facility. So now that that's number one. And number two, in 2021, it was like, okay, I had the whole year to learn. So I was like, All right, I think I know what I'm doing now. At least like I know how the structure works. Now I was going to be the assistant hitting coach in Arizona, the head hitting coach, probably like two or three weeks before spring training had a, f- a family illness that he had to now stay home for. So he, he like essentially like had to resign. And so now it was my, I had to be the head Your hitting show. coach. It was my show. And I was like, uh, okay. So let me think. Here's all the things I've learned. Here's how to just keep this rig on the road. And then I kind of figure it out as I go. And I, I actually think that that situation propelled me further than anything else because I had, it was sink or swim. Trial by fire. I, that's it. And, and I will forever be grateful for that situation. Very unfortunate situation. But, uh, you know, he's, he works in the, the Cleveland organization now. He's, he's great. Or the Cincinnati organization. Sorry. And he's great. And, you know, everything is, is well for him and I'm so happy for him, but yeah, that was a big moment in my career because I got the keys to it and they just said, go drive the thing and don't crash. And I, I think that's what the best can do. Like, okay. Yeah. You're handed something may not that, I mean, not that you weren't ready, but you were able to adjust on the fly. Like, and I think that's what the best can do. Like when when a situation happens where you got to adjust, they can adjust and handle, you know, once the bullets start flying, they can handle all those things. You talked about working out. Are you morning workout? You like working out in the morning? I I prefer the workouts to be the first thing I do in the day. I will make, I will make, uh, I will work out after work if I have to get my workout in. I can't do it. I just can't. It's hard. It's hard. I can't. 
again. I got it. It's got to be the first thing in the morning when I'm clear. Yep. It's after it's, meditation. I'm so, yeah. you know, I'm clear when I wake up, so I'll meditate first, but then I get into some sort of workout. It's usually about 60 to 90 minutes for everything, but I get up really early now to, to be able to do Good that. For you. That's why I get up early yep. now is to be able, because if not, then I got to get here or wherever. I just, I have, that's yep. got to be the first thing I do. Any supplements? Got to knock it out. Tell you something. Uh, I, I do creatine and uh, glutamine for muscle recovery, and that's basically it. And I take a probiotic. Yeah, I'm a uh, multivitamin, but I take creatine also. I've been taking creatine. I think, every, I've been I taking think creatine everybody on the planet should take creatine. I was one of the first people. I, I don't even think people knew what it was when I was taking it. I had read when I was playing in Illinois in the summer, I found this meathead gym uh, that was open after our games. Like, we had night games. I found this meathead place that was open till like, midnight because I had a job that I had to work at at, like, 6.30 in the morning, so I couldn't do it during before games. So I found this place. So I would go after we got done playing, but they introduced and and I always researched stuff before I started taking anything. But Nebraska football was taking it. So there was all this research coming out in Nebraska with Nebraska football and it was it was safe. You just had to make sure you drank enough water. Like that was always a thing. You're gonna blow your hamstrings out. So I yep. took it with cranberry juice, but then I started drinking a lot of water just to make sure. But I put on 15 pounds of muscle like immediately and I was a hard gainer. Like it was one of the things that helped me be able to put on muscle mass. And I, I agree with you. I think everyone should take it. There's so it's many good, benefits outside of the way. Like, it's the most research yep. supplement that we have. And that when I have the nutritionists on, we talk about it all the time. It's, it's been researched longer than anything else that's out there and it's safe. Like uh, yep, to, to get the, sure. um, what, what did somebody say the other day? To get the amount of creatine that you need as a human being, you would have to eat five steaks every day. Wow. For, I didn't for, know that. For, yeah, it's like for whatever the, the five to 10 grams that you take, you would have to eat five full like T-bones to get that amount of creatine in. So you, like, you have to supplement with it. You mm -hmm. have to. It's the only way yeah. that you can get a, enough unless you want to eat five steaks. And that's the way food prices are now. I don't think you want to do that. Yeah, I can't afford five steaks. I saw you at the convention last year briefly, and I've seen, you know, when was your first year coming to the ABCA convention? Last year, and I didn't even yeah, really get to enjoy it. I know. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, I've done the softball convention for years. I've spoke at the softball convention. Uh, it was a good time. The, uh, the last year was the first ABCA I've been to, and I really was there for literally like 24 hours, and then we had to go, so... I'm looking forward to to enjoying more for sure. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to having you on the rookie mentorship panel too. It means a lot, you know. For me, it's gratifying because I'm I'm a 27 year member. When you walk through 27 years ago, it doesn't look like it looks now in a good way. Like we're we're getting more diverse, you know. We see a lot more females, a lot more minorities. Like I think we're getting there. We got a long way to go still, but it, it's gratifying for me because it's starting to look like it should look like society there's many of many different people in society and that's what our condition yeah. should look like as well so what are Love some that. final thoughts before i let you go i know you're busy you're in instructs so i appreciate <laughs> you taking the time yeah i i got nothing for you i'm just the i just got the alert in about 15 minutes our double uh, a team's gonna play game one of the okay. championship <laughs> series so i'm gonna go tune into that hey my parents my, my parents are diehard cubs fans so they are, my dad screams at the television. So hopefully they finish strong here. Cause I don't want Jim Brownlee screaming at the television. Yeah, hopefully not. But I can tell you it's a good time to be a Cubs fan. Cause uh, some good, some good things are happening and we're, we're coming. Great we're people. coming. Love it. All right. Thanks, Rachel.
Appreciate you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Rachel for jumping on with me. I appreciate her willingness to get in the weeds with me on hitting development. Such a great reminder of how much the baseball community is willing to share and help each other. Thanks again to Jim Richardson, John Litchfield, Zach Hale, Matt West, and Antonio Walker in the ABC office for all up on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at coachb underscore abca, or direct message me via the MyBC app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Wait for another